Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can, I can. Cool. I have my AirPods on so you just never know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's a little muffled, but uh, I think it, it, it could work. Is this better, Chris? I took my AirPods out. I'm ditching Ooh, the pot. Much, much better. Much <laughs> better. Is, actually, that is much well, better. Well, all right. Should we just do the space about how AirPods are the worst tech product ever made? <laughs> <laughs> hey, they might get better next week in theory, but you think so? Is that has that been rumored? I think or- that's one of the things that they might do is um, a slight bump. I can't remember what it is they're going to bump it with. But again, is, are we talking about like the the AirPods Pro or the Max or what's the form factor that we're thinking? I I don't remember, but I remember thinking because remember how I had that gripe about how everything should be USB C now. Oh yes, yes. and they were gonna. I I, I knew they were gonna re up it, but they were gonna still keep the Lightning port. So I was like, oh fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, are uh, you ready to get started? Sure, knock okay. it out. Great. Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast show for September 1st. My God, it is September 1st, 2022. Uh, We are joined today by two awesome guests. We have Kaya, we have Simon, and the real big question, I think, on our mind is, is the creator economy okay? Is Snap okay? Is Substack okay? Are all these companies that were flying high during the pandemic when there was free money flowing and lots of creator funds that were, you know, essentially creator slush funds, uh, you know, awash in space? Are we still in that era? Is that era come to a close? Are all the VC subsidies of um, all of this content that people are producing, is that either over coming to a close or is just the economy shifting? At a macro scale, and a lot of bets that people made are maybe not coming out as we might have thought. Anyways, we're here to discuss that topic. Brian, uh, yes, um, let's start off um, with um, Kaya because um, you've you let's. I want to start with um, basically Snap um, because uh, Snap was kind of the biggest story of this week. Uh, laying off 20% of its staff, which is huge. Um, so, uh, is Snap okay? What, what, what do you, what do you think is going on here? So I think they will be okay. I think they're taking pretty drastic measures. If you've been following their earnings reports, I mean, they've almost been, they've been trading so erratically. Like there was one report where they were up 60%. Like that's not how we are normal. Um, And if you were on their earnings call um, in the most recent quarter, Evan Spiegel didn't even speak. They, they, Mm. they didn't even do the formality of reading through the results. They just sent it out to everyone and then did a Q&A with analysts. And he didn't say a word. <laughs> so that was already kind of an interesting... People were like, wait, is he even on the call? Um, so I think they were one of these companies... We, we did a chart um, this week showing that they outpaced any other big tech company in hiring. Um, 
So I think they they fell into this trap of overhiring, and now they're doing this course correction. I think also they have flip-flopped a little bit on who they are as a company. They're an AR company. They're a camera company. They're a messaging company. They're a company for teams. Mm. Now they want to be creators. Um, they started doing games and mini apps and all these different initiatives. So reading the letter, it's really a refocus. Um, obviously, the environment's making them do that. Um, they really also are at risk of losing their foothold with teens. For a long time, they have been consistently the app for teens and people might age out of it, but then new teens come in and now you have TikTok and that's a big threat. They've flip-flopped on whether they want to be a place for creators. For many years, uh, celebrity users didn't have any more analytics than you or I did on Snapchat. <laughs> like It's kind of crazy. And then suddenly they're giving away a million dollars a day to creators and now they're parring that back. I mean, it's really all over the place, but I think this restructuring and this refocusing is probably going to be healthy for the company because they went in so many different directions. Uh, Kaya, I, uh, forgive me. I, I didn't introduce you properly. Uh, oh, you're sure. from, you're from the information and yes. like, you know, obviously you, you do some of the, the deepest reporting on this company than, than just about anyone. So, you know, I rely on you all the time on the show for your reporting on this sort of thing. Okay. Let me, let me, let me pull back a second. Because there's there's the thing that we've been talking about for several weeks, months of like, is there um, a tech only recession going on? Is there a oh we all got screwed by Apple's uh, privacy changes recession going on? It, it, but what what I'm trying to get at actually is, it sounds like almost what you're saying when you say. Maybe they're pulling back from being a camera company or a media company or a creator company. That kind of sounds like the sort of, um, I don't know, uh, midlife crisis that Meta is going through as well. To what degree do you think that they are having similar issues or um, are, are, are there different cases going on between what Meta is experiencing and what um, Snap is experiencing? So I think it's a little bit different just because of the scale. So Meta obviously is much bigger than Snap and has way more properties and has almost gone in way more directions. I mean, I think it was either today or this week where they shut down their um, next door competitor. I mean, if you look at Facebook, I remember, I think a year or so Wait, ago. Facebook I was looking, had a next door competitor? Next, exactly. Yes, yes the, and they the shut point, it down today. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that's the point, right? If you go into the hamburger bar, hamburger menu of Facebook, at, uh, at one point they had food delivery. They had yeah. job postings. They just went, they tried to be this everything app and out of those bets, I think Facebook Marketplace and groups are like the reason people are still on Facebook. Um, but I think with with Facebook and Instagram in particular, they're trying to figure out also, are they still a social product or are they an entertainment product? Um, and that's obviously being, been driven by TikTok. And then the big parent company of Meta is going in the metaverse direction, which is years and years away. And everyone was super hot on it last year. And it was this buzzy word. And now we're in the hangover period. So. Okay, okay, wait. <laughs> let, okay, let me, I'm going to reframe it again. I'm going to give you two things and tell me which is more important for Snap. Because okay. these, are, these are both things that Meta is worried about. Is it, number one, TikTok? 
or is it number two uh, Apple's ATT thing? And and I know that that's not apples to oranges because one is more important to their to their bottom line immediately than the other. But like it, you said that 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 Snap is no is is maybe no longer the place for the kids. So what do you think if you're in the C-suite at, at Snap right now, like what is the thing that you're the most concerned about right now? I know this is lame, but it's both. Because Snapchat also has been trying to grow its advertising market, period. And a big plus for advertisers was they consistently had this young audience. So it's super intertwined. So you have TikTok that's eating into their share and relevancy with teens. I mean, you could argue that Snapchat is a messaging app and that and that that's different from TikTok. But still, if teens are spending more time on TikTok and less on Snap, that's not good for your advertising business. Um, I think generally Snap was a little more insulated from the Apple privacy changes compared to Facebook, but they still, you know, they still had issues with it. Um, but they're, you know, much Facebook is way further along, obviously, with its advertising business. So I think the two are pretty intertwined. Um, there, one of the, the other things from the headlines that I did either yesterday or today, I can't remember, but, um, you know, they're, they're shutting down, um, uh, are they shutting down all of their original shows or they're just not doing new ones? I can't remember what the reporting was. Yeah. So, so they're basically, they're going through with the seasons they have and the news programs are staying and same thing with their political show with Peter Hamby. Um, so that's staying, but future shows that's, that's what's on the top. Okay, of the so what uh, what I'm getting at here is this is the thing that made Snap sort of different to me. Um, I don't know if people can hear my dog uh, drinking his water in the background. I apologize, okay, uh, uh, but uh, like, okay, Snap was sort of early to hey, by the way, we're an entertainment destination. Um, Snap was earlier than Meta. Uh, we're 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 not just a social network. We're also like this sort of like, um, AR first sort of thing. Like, so we do know that they're starting to cut back on their hardware stuff, although they haven't shut down the spectacles. They definitely shut down that sort of drone thing. But yeah. Um, if, if you're a, if you're an investor in snap, how concerned are you that they're sort of pulling back on all of the things that really make them different? Yeah, I mean, I think the original shows, it was kind of hard to tell, honestly, how well they did, because they had these impressive stats about millions of people watching them. But like, was that someone watching one minute of it or accidentally tapping it? I mean, I still think it didn't quite find its niche. Um, and you see that too with YouTube originals, same thing, where they tried to do this Netflix high touch approach, and that also was shut down. So it's not just Snap. You're seeing, I mean, Facebook Watch also, you know, didn't really take off either. So it's almost yeah, who, more of a, who, who does yeah. who does it well? I mean, we could go back to Quibi. Like, who does original programming well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like, none of these platforms. Well, wait, wait, I, I want to make a, a point about that because yeah. I think in some ways, like, Quibi had, uh, well, I can't really say that much about it since I really didn't get to use it. But conceptually, people are moving in this direction of these short-form like, you know, videos, right? And they're moving through them so fast. I mean, I think actually in an interview that I did with the information, I called it information waterboarding, you know, because it's just <laughs> such a, you know, inundation of content. And it's great for brand advertisers 
who are just looking for awareness. But if you're trying to actually convey something, any, you know, anything deeper than that, it's so easy to swipe off that I guess I really wonder if there is kind of a media advertisement fit for either conventional style ads or non-brand advertising and whether or not that is actually part of the reason why it's really hard to monetize in a meaningful way relative to, let's say, you know, YouTube, where you're watching something for, let's say, 15, 20, 30 minutes um, at a time. So, like, one of the big unknowns here is whether TikTok is actually monetizing effectively. They're a private company. There's not a lot of inf information or insights about them. They have their own creator uh, fund. And so how much of this is, is I guess, and, and this is sort of like the broader question about subsidies in the marketplace and whether that is distorting the creators who are producing this content and whether there is actually going to be a there there when kind of like the dust settles and the subsidies dry up. Yeah. So the way I think about these creator funds and through conversations with creators and hearing about how they run their businesses, you have to have a platform where you can monetize and where there's an audience. So if you look at Snap, um, they gave away a million dollars a day and some people like right. they basically won Crazy. the lottery yeah. and started posting and hit the algorithm and literally eight people became millionaires from that who were, you know, in their teens and young adults, but they didn't stick around because there wasn't an audience. The cultural zeitgeist isn't there. You know, it didn't become cool. So yes, you can give away all this money, but there's, you still have to have the audience. I mean, if we look at Instagram, right. That's what I'm wondering, only, right? Like yeah, I, I, Instagram paid yeah. me like 1200 bucks to like make a couple reels and then I never made any more. Right. So there yeah, is this. You know? Yeah. So you have to have the audience and the traction. But then if you look at Instagram as a broader platform, I mean, it was only two or so years ago where they started actually talking about direct monetization. People for yeah. a decade have been making money on Instagram indirectly. So but then you have the vines of the world where you couldn't make money and it was super popular, but creators left. So you have to have this right balance. Um, I think YouTube is really has been the gold standard of mm. ad revenue sharing and having monetization and that working. But even YouTube creators who I talk to, the vast majority of them are not relying on AdSense. You can't rely on on these programs because they're fleeting. They fluctuate. They can make changes. The algo can change. I mean, there's so many factors with it. And it just ends up being brand partnerships are like the number one way still that creators make money. So the subsidy programs can be great, especially for emerging creators. But at the end of the day, I mean, if the audience isn't there and, and the income isn't sustainable, it, it doesn't work. By the way, uh, Simon, as, as we're starting to talk about YouTube, um, also, you're welcome to, to chime in and then we can also <laughs> intro you properly as well. Um, this is an interesting question to me. Um, I, I, I Like YouTube is the best in terms of like, for all of the people not paying attention to them or people shitting on them all this time, like they've, they've basically, they were the originals for monetizing, uh, creator content, um, going back to, from the very beginning because they had to, because they had to, to, to make, uh, the, the, they had to pay the bandwidth bills. They had to pay the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the IP holders and things like that. Is there anybody, how, how come, how come uh, everybody else has taken this sort of shotgun approach, which is, all right, we've got $100 million and we're going to throw it at the, the biggest already successful uh, creators? Because what I see constantly in YouTube, and maybe Twitch is maybe good at this too, 
But like you can create influencers and you can create stars on YouTube and Twitch versus all these other folks like sort of try to prime the pump and like go in the reverse and be like, Hey, come over here as opposed to like creating a groundwork for things to bubble up from, from underneath. Yeah. But I think like arguably Instagram is the home of influencer marketing, right? Like a right, lot right. of personalities have come from it, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's much harder to have a sustainable career on a platform. That's not, doing some sort of ad revenue sharing or giving you some sort of consistent income. Real quick, real quick. Um, Most influencers, depending on what platform you're on, are you, I I was seeing something about this recently, which is why it's at the top of my mind. Like are, are, are people getting their lead gen from other places? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's not, you can't go to one channel. It's like, this is where I get my audience from. And this is where I get my money from. Right? Like everybody in the creator economy is sort of like putting their fingers in all these different pies because you get attention from this place, but you make money from that place. Is it still completely bifurcated like that? Yeah. And it depends on the creator too. I mean, you could theoretically make all your money from brand from independent brand partnerships on Instagram, or you could, you know, or you could be like a big LinkedIn influencer and sell like a marketing course. But yeah, I mean, it's fragmented. And I think creators too have been really savvy about diversifying their business. Because if one platform makes huge changes that and that's your whole business, that's not a good spot to be in. So I think creators are almost forced to be in this spot of diversifying and being everywhere. This is a Hunter Walks multi multi skew creator concept uh, from from a little while back, I think. Um, one of the things that I wanted to, to, to note was just, you know, today, um, Adam Aseri, the head of Instagram, um, was sharing on his stories uh, about how he believes that the uh, creator monetization opportunity, especially through brand partnerships, is a $10 billion opportunity, which, you know, it's a pretty good chunk of change. Um, also, recently, uh, within the last week, I pinned a tweet uh, with, a, with a screenshot of this. I was invited. I, I have a professional account on Instagram, mostly just to like check out what's going on. And I was invited into their brand um, marketplace, their creator marketplace. And I, I find this to be very, very interesting, very savvy. And also, um, Kai, I'm just like curious how you see this relative to all these other company, companies, I, I think, trying to sort this out and figure it out. This creator marketplace essentially... One sort of forced me to go through this uh, process where I allow the brands or creators that I might partner with know, to know a lot about me personally, to know a lot about my audience, to know a lot about my reach. So essentially, it's all opt-in. You cannot participate unless you actually do this. And then secondly, you arrive at the end and you describe a number of things about your demographics or your interests or your, your the topics that you might want to advertise yourself to in this creator marketplace. And as a result... These brands can then find you and then send you requests, which you know have been on the platform for, for quite some time. If you ever try to tag or label a brand, you can sort of enable monetization of your content. But what I find is interesting about this one is the formalization of this. So there are a number of these creator marketplaces that already exist that are outside the platform. And I, you know, and I've seen them and worked with them. They ask you to do screenshots of your stats, or sometimes they even re- require you to share your login information so they can come and confirm visibility into how much reach you're getting so they can pay you accordingly. The fact that Instagram is doing this on platform, of course, is in some ways catching up to YouTube, but at the same time, they're doing it in a way that, you know, one is mobile first, two feels actually like pretty well done. And I suppose three, one of the things I wanted to get to was like feels so far in advance of where Twitter is. Now, 
we don't have to go directly to the Twitter topic yet, but I wanted to get your take on this new, or at least it seems to me new, although maybe it's been around for a while, this creator marketplace that, that Instagram seems to be rolling out to more people now. Yeah, so Instagram first teased the program in April of last year, but it took mm. a while for them to, to roll it out. Um, I did a chart actually in my newsletter last fall comparing them. So Instagram, Snap, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, they all have a form of this. And actually, Twitter has this little known division called Art House, which um, in 2015, they purchased an influencer marketing startup called Niche. And so they do some of this connecting. It's not quite as automated, I think, as the like self-serve marketplace type thing, but Twitter has, uh, you know, they're in that space kind of. Um, So I think generally this, this can work really well for smaller creators who are just getting started and might be don't have a manager who's sourcing deals for them. Um, I have heard though from some creators that they're getting inbound from stuff that's just so irrelevant. So like I talked Uh, to this uh woman who, so I think there's, there's, potential for these marketplaces to stumble a little bit when it's just automated and you can get these kind of spammy, you know, Basically like at that, scale, the quality is not yeah. necessarily that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think these, these third party marketplaces, a lot of them have a lot of people involved, right? Like it might be a self-service yep. portal, but there's people involved with the creative and hashing out the deals, which you're lacking from the social platforms. But, um, I, I spoke with this woman last year who has a cooking channel and she was getting like, pimple cream they're like can you do this pimple cream and he was like no like this makes no sense so she was really unimpressed with kind Mm. of the inbound she was getting but i think it's smart especially if instagram starts trying to take a cut of these deals um you know that's Mm -hmm. a potential new revenue stream they do obviously have the scale on the advertiser relationships and it is a it is it can be potentially good for smaller creators but um you know from from the early at least from when tiktok's creator marketplace was rolling out um a lot of the creators were a little unimpressed with it. You know, it. so, so there, there's two points that I want to, um, I guess one, one question and one, and another point. Uh, do you know if let's say that the pebble cream company or whatever was actually an Instagram brand or were they a Facebook advertiser that was offered so access? This was TikTok. This was TikTok. Oh, t- um, oh, I see. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, every platform does it a little bit differently. I don't know if they vet the brands or if only certain brands can use it. I think Instagram's especially is in kind of earlier stages. So I'm not quite sure, but I think too, it could just be brands reaching out to a ton of influencers mm. and not really thinking through like who's actually a good fit for this okay. campaign. So that'll be interesting to see if the Instagram offering, you know, kind of evolves that um, in terms of getting the right brands and from the right creators and and thus you know and you know i but i I do still like one of the things that i do wonder about is the cross-platform publishing aspect and bringing advertisers who are conventionally on facebook and think about facebook as being where their audience is to then you know ticking a box and essentially allowing it to their their ads to flow through the facebook advertiser network and those things end up on instagram because you know the algorithm says oh this is just my inventory and i'm going to spread it wherever there's audience so it'll be curious to see how that actually like comes together. The thing I wanted to point out, though, was that in the early days of the Apple ad network, and of course, I'm still a little bit skeptical about Apple's advertising efforts. However, obviously, they have an enormous um, surface area with the App Store uh, and elsewhere, Apple News and so on. Um, you know, they, they tried to do, I think, what Snap has tried to do, which was have a higher quality advertising content and media and it just seems like because they take that more bespoke approach, it just, it, one, it doesn't really end up scaling, and two, it ends up hurting their business. And I wonder if, if you can speak to that at all, where there is 
you know, more of a marketplace, like an open marketplace aspect. And that's what's giving Facebook and Meta the edge uh, in this current kind of downturn. Yeah, I mean, I think with the marketplaces specifically, right now, there is no monetization plans for that. So I don't know if they're trying to, to sell this as kind of an additional perk to advertisers. But right now, they're not taking a cut of anything. They're just letting, they're just trying to right. do this matchmaking type thing. Mm. So you could see that becoming maybe a bigger part of their strategy in the future. But for now, you know, Snap said the up. same thing. Yeah. yeah, they're just basically trying to, to use their, you know, their scale, um, you know, and their position. But for now, there, there's no plans to take a cut from it. But it could be a way to kind of just pitch advertisers generally of like, oh, hey, look, we also have this service for, you know, influencer marketing. So it, right now it's a, I, I don't see it, you know, obviously being a beneficial revenue driver, but maybe in the future. You know, uh, I can only speak for the podcasting space, but um, I, I think it's relevant to this. Like, it's weird to me how it doesn't scale. Like, you can't do programmatic in so much of this stuff because like you could do it for like websites because you could like scan the text and things like that. But if you're talking about like live things like we're doing now, or even, you know, even video and stuff, it's harder. You can't do programmatic because it, 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 it just, it, the, the machines can't make it work. So you have to do that sort of handholding stuff. You have to have that relationship sort of building like with podcasting. It was easy because, I, I listen, I know all these people, they all just moved over from radio, right. Um, to, to, for, for, for good and for bad for podcasting. But, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's weird to me <laughs> that like, um, it, it, it is still mad men stuff where you have to have these relationships with these networks and, and with the creators and like, and the advertisers. And it's like, well, we have to trust that, um, there's content that we can put about it. So like, it's, it's not, it's not as easy as, as doing programmatic or whatever. Um, I want, I want to bring Simon in here. Um, Simon Owens has been on before like Kaya, um, you know, his, uh, media newsletter, it, because I go to Simon for stuff like this. Like basically he's, he covers the ability for folks like me to be, um, you know, solo brands and things like that. Simon, let me, let me broaden this out by asking you, 18 months ago, when we were talking, when Chris and I were starting to do shows like this, we were talking about the creator economy as like the next thing, the next big thing in terms of investing and like where Silicon Valley was going. Um, and then the metaverse sort of stole that fire. Like, where do you think we are in terms of um, the creator economy and capital letters being a thing that um, big tech platforms actually give a shit about? I mean, I think it's it's still a huge market, and I think it still has nowhere to go but up in terms of just you see, you know, the year over year growth in terms of uh, you, you know the number of people who are supported by the creator economy, uh, just YouTube alone, how much uh, you know money it's sharing with creators, the massive growth within the podcast industry, it's doubled in size in the last year. It does, you know, it really, there's just so much growth ahead of it. But we're also seeing some like macroeconomic conditions right now that are kind of cooling down the market where there's a lot less free money that, sh that can be used to just throw around. Um, obviously, you know, changes to Apple's privacy, um, the Fed, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. There's like a lot of like less free money from VCs and also 
in terms of like uh, investments in public markets that all of a sudden investors are being a lot more skeptical. And that's why you're seeing like the cratering of um, stock prices for like Snap and Facebook. And and I'm sure we're going to talk about Substack and stuff yes. like that. But it's just it, the, but, the market is just cooling down. So like these huge advances where they're just throwing money at media companies like for Snap to, to you know, they're these paying these huge premiums for them to, um, I, you know, I'm, I saw I remember they were paying upwards of like 50 to $100,000 per minute of video on some of their original series. There's just like there's a little bit less like just free money to throw around. And I think that's what Chris and I are, are trying to get at in the same way that um, three or four years ago, if you were in Hollywood, everyone was throwing money at you because they everyone was going to streaming and they needed content. And it's sort of, you know, an analogy could be made to the whole business model of like the Ubers of the world where it's like, or, 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 or the GoPuffs where it's like everything is like VC uh, subsidized sort of growth thing. Simon, do you think it's gotten harder this year, 2022, to, to be a creator because sort of the VC subsidy tap is kind of shutting off? No, not necessarily. I mean, I, I'm speaking to the general creator who doesn't have access to those huge advances that are paying off. Like, I'm still seeing, you know, steady advertising demand. It ha- you know, we haven't actually entered a recession yet. So there's still strong market forces, strong advertising demand. Um, consumers have still have money in their pockets to pay for subscriptions. So I think in, in those terms, like if you're, if you're trying to build a diversified business right now, media business right now, um, that the, you know, the market wins are still at your favor. But, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, some of that free money is, is, um, drying up in terms of you see Facebook now is, uh, it's closing down its news platform or it's still, I think it's going to, st- Kaya might, might know the, the correct news, but I think it's, it's either closing down its news tab or it's just taking away all that free money that it was giving to news publishers where it was paying like the wall street journal, the New York times upwards of mm. like $5 million for nothing. All they were doing was just posting their links uh, to this news tab or, you know, um, the money that fa- that Snapchat was paying out for original content or Substack. You're seeing them really kind of like as Kaya uh, reported, starting to wind down some of their huge advances that they were throwing out to all these star reporters who weren't really committed to the platform, I don't think, and weren't building sustainable businesses. And they're seeing in their numbers that they didn't pay off in the way that they thought they would. And so I think a lot of, I think so if you're, if you're building a sustainable business, like the, you know, the tech meme ride home, uh, that's built on like a <laughs> solid audience growth and, and business foundation, I think you're still good. But, uh, if you're looking for those huge cast advances, those are probably starting to dry up a little bit. Well, let's let's go ahead and do it. Um, Kaya, uh, Substack, uh, reigning in writer cash advances. They, you know, had healthcare stipends and things like that. But also, you know, the reporting is is that they tried to raise around and no one was taking, and so they need to cut back. Like everybody else, everybody in tech is is tightening their belts right now, but. Um, Substack specifically, um, what are you hearing uh, inside of Substack and how they're thinking about things right now? Yeah, I mean, all that's 100% right. I mean, they tried to raise a Series C, the New York Times reported um, in late May. The story came out, and um, I I was able to speak with um, Substack's co-founder, Hamish McKenzie, this week. So 
Um, I got a little bit of intel from him, but um, he had a quote that was pretty, I thought, you know, really got to the heart of the problem. I mean, he said that 2021 was a year they could, you know, be less cautious and, and just kind of use their resources to fund, you know, splashy advances and offer services like healthcare to top writers. Um, and now he said pretty bluntly, we have to be more cautious. And he said that we can't bank on easy to get venture capital at good prices to be there. Um, so, you know, he was pretty blunt with that. Um, they're trying to do, you know, focus more on investing in features that are more scalable. I'd be curious, Simon, if, if you've seen this, um, help, but they've been crediting recommendations. So writers recommending each other's newsletters as being a big growth driver. So they're trying to, um, really focus on that rather than these individual perk kind of filled deals. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Yeah, and you could tell that they had just so much free capital flowing towards them because they were kind of lighting money on fire. Like, if you read some of these Substack Pro deals, like, there was, like, this slate writer who had, like, maybe 60,000 followers who, I mean, that's pretty good. That's not, that's not bad. But they gave him an advance of over $400,000. And I'm just like incredibly skeptical that, you know, in his first year, um, that he, you know, basically earned back that, that advance. And you, you just saw these huge like brand name 
writers who were going onto the platform who were probably like demanding incredible advances and how much were they really committed to building an audience on Substack? I don't know. Like one of the people I interviewed was this great, fantastic writer, had nothing but good things to say about his writing, David Kushner, who's written like cult classic nonfiction books that have been turned into movies. Um, but like, if you looked at his Substack, he stopped posting recently, right when his, um, right when his advance came up, but he never even put anything behind a paywall. So I, I doubt he was generating much money for the platform. So you just saw them like shotgunning these advances, you know, all over the place. And then to what Kaya was talking about before with their recommendations feature, I think that Substack has been rolling out. Like the, the, the legitimate criticism of Substack in the beginning was it's just a newsletter platform. Why are you giving 10% of your advance? Uh, There's no differentiation. Yeah. Like anybody could yeah. do the same thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that's not true anymore. It, it has a legitimate moat, and it's been rolling out new features like crazy. I could, you know, I could talk about a lot of them, but as Kaya referenced, there's the recommendations feature, which has created legitimate, I would say, based on my own data and also looking at what Substack has uh, released, legitimate network effects that are real drivers of uh, uh, user-reader acquisition, and right, that's just something that doesn't exist elsewhere. Simon, you're you're on your newsletters on Substack, right? Yeah. And so the the recommendation thing is basically, you know, and you love to see it. Uh, it's sort of like the blog role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> coming back to life or whatever. Yeah. Um, I can explain and, and, real quick what it is. Yeah. For your go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so basically, it's a completely opt-in system where you, as a Substack writer, can recommend other writers that you enjoy on Substack. Like you, it's a little widget you create. And then when someone signs up for your newsletter, it automatically, the, the screen the user lands on, recommends these other newsletters that you've recommended. And, the, and they're checkboxes to each one, and they're all checked for opt-in, and you just have to push a button, and suddenly you're, you're subscribed to all those newsletters. Um, so it's like it comes across as a personal endorsement right at the point that the, the reader is signing up for the newsletter when they're most likely to maybe sign up for multiple newsletters. What are what are the other features you, you said sort of offhandedly? Um, that's the biggest one. But what are the other things that you said that they have a moat now that is useful to to newsletter writers like you? Yeah, I mean they've rolled everything out from you know better analytics to segmented lists, all kinds of things you could not get for free. You'd have to pay top dollar for Mailchimp. They also have um, you know now pot, a very robust kind of pod, podcast functionality, so that you if you want to create, you can host your podcast for free on Substack, but then you can also create customized links for your paid subscribers. So you could have a basically a um, paid distribution of podcasts. So you can put your podcast behind the role, behind the um, paywall. It has more sophisticated paywall technology now to where I can tease content in different ways. Like with my newsletter, I do like these Q&A sessions where I answer questions from um, my readers and the first half of my of those questions I'll make for free and send out to my free list, but it, the rest of them are locked behind a paywall. So it's getting more sophisticated stuff that you can't find on like the competitors, like review and stuff like that. Which is like I think this is actually a very key and important point. Uh, everything you just described, I mean, one sounds really great and sounds very writer friendly and sounds like it may be helping you to run your business on Substack. I think that's that's one of the things that. Maybe there's a, a bit of either a bifurcation or a maturation that is occurring where if I were to think about, you know, Shopify um, and other types of platforms that are really focused on commerce and like the selling of things, that there are other 
platforms that are more focused on the selling of digital content, you know, and increasingly, you know, you as the, the, the creator and the producer of this you know, material needs tools. You need the ability to, as you said, like segment your audience to actually, you know, carve out or identify who your most loyal or best customers are, and then to treat them, you know, with a different level of um, uh, attention to make sure that they stick around and don't churn. So I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at, and you mentioned review, which Twitter of course acquired. And now I, I believe is rolling into Twitter, right? Um, which is uh, God, you know, like even as I'm thinking about it now, I'm sort of thinking about the past of medium and how medium was one of the first to have kind of paywalled content or sort of like a, a writer program. So they were very early to, giving people those tools, but of course they were also overall pretty disorganized and Twitter also seems to be quite disorganized as usual. And so when I think about the laser focus that platforms like Spotify and Substack um, have on their creators and on turning those or or providing the tools to help them build their own business, I guess I'd I'd love to hear you or, or, or am I in the right kind of ballpark with what you're saying? Like originally Substack started out as like a newsletter platform. But now it's becoming a platform for writers to like build a business. Is that is that too much, or is that kind of directionally right? Yeah, I mean, I think they are laser focused on treating. Uh, I think serving the the writer first, and maybe the reader second. Um, and um, I think that's you know how they kind of orient their orient their philosophy as like how how is what we're building actually helping writers. And, you know, I belong to a lot of different platforms, social media platforms and stuff like that. In terms of new product rollout, considering that they have fewer than 100 people working for them, like the, the, the rate at which they ship new features is just incredible. Whereas like Review, I got super excited when Twitter <laughs> yeah. acquired Review. I was like, oh, there's going to be all sorts of cool network effects where they're going to integrate it with Twitter so that you can, you know, basically, you know, because every writer hangs out on Twitter anyway, and it's their kind of watering hole. So there would be a lot of synergy between review and and, uh, Twitter in a way that it could be like a really formidable Substack competitor. I don't remember the last time that review, um, you know, launched a new product update. And I follow this stuff closely. Well, I think, I think so, review is dead, and it is being replaced by Twitter Write. But Twitter Write is not fully rolled out, and Twitter Review still exists. So it's in this kind of limbo state. Yeah, but will Twitter Write? I haven't seen any indication that there's going to be a newsletter component to that, which is very important for yeah. anyone who's building hundred percent. So I don't hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, can you actually, in, in building on what you're saying, as I'm going through Substack's product blog, um, one of the things that they're talking about, and of course, this is, I think, part and parcel to the creator economy, and I don't know to what degree this is about user acquisition for the platform or whether it was a necessary recognition about what creators need to do to cultivate a keyword here, community, um, in order to sustain their business. So my, my, my question is about Substack's adoption. Uh, and promotion of community features. Because like you said, I too was excited about Twitter's acquisition of review. I was moderately excited about Twitter launching communities. It feels like, and I don't want to overemphasize Twitter, but I guess in, in a way I'm sort of chagrined or just kind of like bummed about how much stuff Twitter has launched that doesn't seem to have a coherent narrative or story or experience when it comes to creators building for the creator economy. Like for example, I have a tweet on um, how... I, I think I've been in, in the super follows program for a year. Uh, I've also had Twitter tips turned on and I've made a total of like a hundred bucks 
you know, and, and uh, Apple took 30% of that. So clearly I'm not able to make a living on Twitter being <laughs> a creator, uh, yet they have all the features. Whereas if Substack has community, are you using those features and are you finding them valuable and useful for what you're doing? Or are you sticking mostly to the writer tools uh, and the paywall features? Yeah, I mean, I think with the community, they started to witness it with their own um, writers that they were they their their thesis in the beginning was that there should be a fair exchange um, price for uh, you know premium content, and that the only two things that a writer would produce is free content and content uh, behind a paywall. But some of their most successful writers kept almost a hundred percent of their um, uh, their content in front of the paywall, and yet still saw tremendous um success through doing things like you know by pitching the the mission of what they're on so like judd Lagoom is one of the most successful political writers on substack and he's making you know based on my calculations at least a half a million dollars a year he doesn't lock anything behind a paywall and because he's pitching them he's pitching his readers on supporting his mission of holding republicans accountable and then they also noticed that a lot of um a lot of Substack writers were keeping their content from the paywall, but they were selling on the community. So they were using things like comment sections, and Substack has long had this tool called Threads, and and you ha- you got the content for free, but you got to participate in the community as that was the perk for for becoming a paid subscriber. So I think you know the reason that they're bu- they're suddenly all of a sudden ch- like acknowledging <laughs> like they the, the, I was surprised recently they acknowledged in a blog post. Um, recently that a lot of their writers aren't locking stuff behind a paywall. And, and so it's them realizing that there are other things that you can sell other than just paywall content. Well, okay. <laughs> to that end, and, and Kaya, I, I'm going to pitch this to you because I, I think maybe um, you've done more reporting on this. Substack, the story is, is like, oh, look, they, in a way, they've done what Medium could never do Except for the fact that, like, what if they're going down the same cul-de-sac that Medium did? Because, I, like, I'm looking at a recent piece of yours, and I think that um, we think that that Substack generated nine million dollars in revenue in 2021. Um, they increased um, their paid subscriptions from fifty thousand to over a million, but. Like even if if you got a million paid subscriptions and you're only making nine million in revenue, like. Where, do we think that one of the problems is is that the race to scale that they're hoping for is maybe hitting a wall, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, the, the $9 million is from the New York Times reporting based on kind of the Series C falling through. So that's what they were telling investors when they were trying to raise. So I haven't independently confirmed that. But, you know, assuming, obviously, that the New York Times is right, Um it's tough and, and trying to raise at a billion dollar valuation with 9 million in revenue, you know, last year, sure. This year, absolutely not. So uh, I think they're rethinking their strategy is what's happening where they really focused on, like Simon said, getting some of these really big flashy names, especially journalists to leave. But then even, you know, Hamish in our interview was like um, the, the, the history professor, um, Heather Cox Richardson, like she is way more popular than Glenn Greenwald or Barry Weiss or some of these big, you know, names they came on. So I think they're realizing that like, we might not know who's going to be a huge success on Substance. And and Helen doesn't, 
Helen doesn't lock any content behind a paywall. Like it's all like her only her only perk is uh, the community, you know, participation. And and yeah. if if no one puts it behind a paywall, then does Substack get a taste of anything or not? Yeah, they get a taste of every every payment that goes through Substack. But what I'm saying is, is if it's not behind a paywall, like if if the most successful people are putting everything out in the open, then where's Substack go? Yeah. I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, if they're, yeah, so basically if they're not able to take a cut, I, I mean, I think people still pay to subscribe to her to support her and get yeah. the I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. But there yeah. are there are some people on Substack, like the guy who does Slow Boring, or um, right. he he doesn't have a, there are, there are, and uh, Brian Morsey at the Rebooting, like they don't sell any subscriptions. They monetize completely through, um, through, uh, the, like like uh, advertising and sponsorships, and currently Substack doesn't get any any cut of that. Right. That that's kind of what I was asking. If like the most successful people, like if I met Iglesias, um, I think he's the slow boring guy. Um, Sorry, it's not a Matt Iglesias. It's like who's the guy who does like the long sponsored post? He's like a tech. The, web that's three guy. yeah yeah. Packy, that's um, um Patty Patty Packy Packy McCormick. McCormick. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I was talking about. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, but but that's the point. Is like if you're Packy, Packy makes his money from his fund. Okay. If you're Matt Iglesias, we believe he made the better part of I don't know three quarters of a million dollars in, in upfronts and things like that. Like there's the, the incentives for the people that have been successful on the platform. If those are drying up, like it it it, it, it feels to me that Substack's business is sort of in danger. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I see that, um, that, uh, Matt Navarra is, has, has, is jumped on stage. Um, if he wants to, um, add some specifics, I don't know what he can speak about, but, uh, Matt, go ahead and, and speak, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. Sure. Hi. Um, I was going to be going to bed, but I can't sleep. So, Hey, I'll, I'll join him for five minutes or so. Um, yeah, no, I was interested in what you were saying about the Twitter newsletter and the Twitter notes or write or whatever you want to call it. Cause obviously I have my newsletter, which goes out through the Twitter platform, um, which was when review was review and not part of Twitter. And I also am on the Twitter notes beta um and i was just dming with uh, chris before i spoke saying it's going to be very tricky because i'm nda'd for so many of these bits it's hard to kind of dance around the topic but what i can say is that i personally haven't been overly impressed with with right and twitter notes um but i like what they're trying to achieve with it i think that's the nicest way to to say it um i'm um, unsurprised but disappointed at the fact that it, it, again it's kind of a bit like twitter communities and a few other recent product launches it kind of launches with a bit of fanfare and a bit of public discussion about their you know developing in the open and things and then it kind of just gets seemed to be not abandoned but certainly nothing really happens very quickly with it and then it kind of goes quiet and i feel like that's kind of happening with twitter communities but also i wonder whether a similar thing will happen with the the notes thing but what I'd, it does look like to me is and it is a personal opinion is that it that that notes will be the focus, um, I think, going forwards as the, as the writing platform. Um, but I'm not utterly convinced that it's going to 
fly very well um and, and i guess it will depend on how much it ties in with super follows and not that that's particularly taken off very well and how well it can you know kind of weave itself into the other products which could be monetized as a package of things um but but yeah i think in terms of twitter review uh, i think i've kind of already aired to twitter that i'm very disappointed that the platform is pretty much gone stagnant and, and if you're a twitter newsletter writer through the review platform you must be feeling pretty pretty fed up right now but that, that's my take about what are your you know, Matt, you, you, you obviously publish on a number of different, um, you know, topics, um, and, you know, you, you've, you've been able to make a living, uh, you know, doing this as an independent uh, journalist and observer of, of, you know, all sorts of things, I guess, how would you rank or maybe not rank, but just kind of evaluate the number of creator platforms that you see out there, um, you know, relative to your own experience with them. Uh, I understand, you know, your comments were just sort of about the specific maybe features or, um, you know, kind of what Twitter has to offer, but how do you think about Twitter, you know, writ large in the creator economy and the creator space relative to Meta and Instagram and to, you know, even TikTok? Uh, it feels quite quite a scary place to be for me at the moment mm. with Twitter as it is, because my um, biggest following is on Twitter and I make mm. my kind of like presence on social most known through Twitter and, and I've invested heavily in the platform. And so right now with everything that's going on, there's so much going on for them at the moment. Um, it does feel a precarious place to be a creator who is, you know, has a, a heavy sort of, uh, sort of investment in them. Um, and I obviously try and diversify what I do with other platforms as well. But, but that, that's an initial kind of thought on that. Um, I think that they don't, um, I can't imagine for, for creators that are sort of starting out or kind of got a smaller following or an audience that that they stand out as being a good bet right now i, I can't there's nothing that really would incentivize me as a new creator to to be using twitter other than what a lot of people do which is it's just a, a very quick and easy distribution platform if you can build up a bit of a following and you know there's tried and tested techniques so if you want to get a a big following on Twitter. We, we all know probably what we can do to get that very quickly, whether we want to do it or not. Um, and then just use it to just shoehorn traffic and and people towards something else that you're doing on another platform. You know, mm, so so basically pushing elsewhere. What? Well, yeah, one, one know, more one more question about this. Does that. So yeah, um, but uh, but I think um, but uh, yeah, I think they're they're they're, they're muddled. They're confused still. Mm. They're throwing out things left, right, and centre. There's people quitting all over the shop. The number of people I've spoken to from Twitter that are um, have either publicly but also not publicly are just kind of bailing on the company now. Uh, it does feel a pretty scary time for them, and I, I wonder if anyone's going to come in and rescue them at all. Um, but, <laughs> mm. Yeah, mm. But well, so, so, yeah, in terms of writing other platforms, you know, I've been particularly impressed with, is it, I don't know how you pronounce it right, but Beehive or Behith, their, their platform looks really hot in terms of the amount of features they're churning out for newsletter creators. Um, it's been pretty impressive. And that's the one that, for me, if I was to jump how do you spell that? Twitter, uh, B-E-E-H-I-I-V. It's oh. the guys who, um, or girls that were behind um, uh, the, uh, what's it called, Morning Brew. Morning Brew. Stuff, uh, yeah, um, and that's that's pretty good. Substack did try and tempt me about three months ago and tried to say, we'll give you this, we'll give you that if you come here and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I didn't go with that option. Um, no, it's, now, Matt, you can't. They pulled it all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was a sucker. But the thing is, mine's a tricky one because I, I've never monetized through doing um, like paid paid newsletter. And that's not something to say I won't in the future, but it's not been my strategy up till now. Mine has been a 
as many free, people yeah. as I can to subscribe for free, getting advertising in there. And like that newsletter on um, the Geek Out Now, I think I've publicly talked about before, it's once a week it goes out, it's, um, it's free to everybody, but it generates over $150,000 in, in revenue for that Friday email. from, And that's just from uh, sponsorship and ads in each month. Um, so for me, it works. And that, that changes for me the dynamics of which platform I go to because um, a lot of the platforms are geared around making it easier to kind of put paywalls up and, and managing your paid subscribers and that isn't so important to me right now so yeah it's interesting but, but well, I well, one more thing for me any are, are, are you interested at all in twitter's podcast offerings uh good question um so twitter space i do on a friday the twitter space which kind of i've right. been a bit sloppy in recent weeks and and, and that's always been to me uh, a good um, so the social media geek up right yeah, because like we did do a podcast and we had it sponsored by um, Pinterest and they've sponsored us for right. like two or three seasons and um, and it had really good guests and it was and it did perfectly well. But the the time it was taking to produce, edit, and anyone who does podcasts knows, you know, to do a decent one, it takes that amount of time. But to do it if you're not getting paid and, and or with, with the hope that someone will sponsor you or you'll get some ads in there is a lot of work for for something you might not get anything for. So we decided in the end that we would only do another podcast if we up front got the sponsorship and so this the halfway house for me and for, and for a lot of us is to do twitter spaces but now i think the podcast component which i know is is distinctly just pulling in the rss feeds the the podcast stuff but for me it might be it might encourage me motivate me to do a bit more of a kind of polished version of the twitter space that would be good as a uh, as a podcast which i know that we've done with you guys before we were putting it into your feed yep. for your podcast mm-hmm. feed so but, but overall i think it's a good idea i think it, it, it makes sense you know it's not a, it doesn't feel like a huge job for them to pull in on rss feeds podcasts and um, give it a space for people to to clip it up and share it out that's got to be a good thing for podcast creators and uh and people do like if they're like me will browse twitter and, and have that on in the background like i do with spaces so it, it it's, makes far more sense i think there's more mileage in that than there is in pure twitter spaces as a as an audio or social audio platform um i i've got i, I think i've got three more questions and then we can uh, wrap this topic in, in case uh, people need to go. But um, for all three of you on, on stage here, one of the things, and again, I guess I'm a creator in the space too, and I've tried subscriptions for podcasts and things like that. Look, I, I've, I've proven definitively for my own business that advertising is just easier and makes more money. I'm just going to throw this out there R- to anyone to that premium wants. premium uh, subscribers and, and subs. Yes. Yeah. For me, and I think for a lot of people, but that's what I'm kind of asking for anyone that wants to comment on this. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. 
With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. What if the whole idea of the creator economy and people um, paying for content and things like that, like what if it just isn't enough? What if that's not the right business model for creator stuff? Like what if everybody has to just go back to ad support? Um, whoever wants to, to take a crack at that, let me know. So this is something, yeah, I've become more opinionated on, especially within the last year is, is I think there was this hope, this great hope, especially around the time, 2017, 2018, when, when Substack first launched, uh, you know, Ben Thompson had had so much success with his paid subscriptions. The New York times was doing gangbusters. All of a sudden every publication was launching a paywall and there was this hope that readers were flocking towards paying for content again, and it would be the great savior of media. And I think like the last year, there's been a legitimate subscription slowdown, not just with Netflix, but you see, you know, um, the Wall Street Journal's worried about, you know, it's, it's uh, user growth. The Washington Post uh, just reported that it's, or the, the, the New York Times just reported that the Washington Post is, is actually losing subscribers. I think a lot of Substack writers who go onto the platform all gung-ho about how they're going to get their thousand true fans are just running into a brick wall. And I think the reality is, is that, you know, revenue diversification is going to need to happen for the vast majority of creators who want uh, to make a living with it. You know, I, I, I opened up two sponsorships at the beginning of this year or in the March of this year, you know, virtually overnight doubled my revenue and started making something close to a living wage. I think it's, it's definitely, I think you're onto something, Brian, that, you know, 
paid subscriptions alone are not going to get the vast majority of media companies or individual creators across the finish line. Kaya, are you hearing something similar? Is there sort of um, subscription fatigue out there going on right now? Yeah, I mean, two things I'll say. The vast majority of creators I speak with, brand partnerships are their number one revenue source. And even with YouTubers, yes, AdSense makes up a big chunk, but really the brand partnerships that they cut independently is generally the biggest revenue driver. I think, too, what's at play is culturally, you know, you mentioned tipping, Chris. It's not something that we're used to doing online. Like, if you look at China, totally different. Huge online tipping culture. And there is a sense that, like, of course, I want to support someone and I want to pay for something. But that's only going to be a really small percentage of your fans. The majority of people were used to using social media for free. We're, you know, if you look at Twitter Blue or Snapchat Plus, like, the numbers are tiny of people that are willing to pay for social media. And the numbers are also tiny for, I mean, you know, we'll see. Once we hit the edit fans. button, you know, and the edit button's five yeah, bucks, true, you know, it might change true, everything. But, just kidding. True, true. I'm definitely paying $5 for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think just it's still, a, uh, it can be a foreign behavior. We've seen, you know, some areas buck that trend. If you look at uh, gamers on YouTube or Twitch, I mean, huge part of that comes from subscription. I mean, tipping tipping and, yeah. and subscription to like live streams seems to be, there, there's much yeah. more of a product market or at least sort of like a paying yeah. as you go kind of. And also there, there's moments where, you know, live streamers will like stop and they will ask you and they will tell you the thing to do, right? Whereas for me, I'm not going to, you know, change every fifth tweet to be like, hey guys, you know, please tip for my awesome tweet content. You know, people are like, screw you, Messina. Like, whatever, your content's free and it's shit, you know? So like, I, I get it. But you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's really hard otherwise to, to turn this into like a real, you know, I mean, it can be like a side side hustle, I suppose. Yeah. And two, there's other ways to do it, right? Like some creators are super successful with selling their merch. And that's, yes. but I think when there's a, when a, when a fan is getting something in return, like, yes, they have the good feeling of, of supporting you, but with Twitch, right, they're shouting out your comment or their, your comment is getting pinned, like you're getting something. Um, and I think just this one-off tip jar that's buried that you can't even find on Twitter. Well, like, there's no satisfaction. It's like yeah. dead. It's like, yeah. you know, when Steve Jobs said, like, you know, all the sex was like out of the computing industry or something and then in- invented by the iPhone. It's like the same thing. It's like when you contribute to a creator, you want to feel somehow connected, like like that there's a bond, you know, when, and, and granted, I don't do the live Peloton shows, but every time like the Peloton person is like, oh, shout out to some weird, you know, abstract username, yeah. you know, like yeah. that's got to okay. be so meaningful for that person. I, we have to, this, I have to seg it into OnlyFans. This is the, the <laughs> second of my third question. <laughs> because, and, and, and Kaya, you wrote about this today. Uh, OnlyFans is the most, well, YouTube's probably the most successful, but <laughs> the most successful uh, creator platform in existence. Um, is there something we can learn from what they're doing versus what other people are doing? I mean, sex sells. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Steve Jobs wasn't wrong. No, right? but, but it is funny because we're talking about how subscriptions and tipping isn't sustainable and OnlyFans is out here saying they've you know, that creators have yeah. earned nearly $4 billion, which is up 115%, you know, from the past Clearly year. Clearly, I am in the wrong um, business. <laughs> yeah, and look, it's not all adult content, right? I mean, like, Rebecca Minkoff well, is Do there. you know what percentage yeah. it is? I mean, like, you know, how many are I, actually chefs and, uh, you know, I would love not to know. The they're they're not going yeah. to tell you that because I feel like they're trying to, you know, they're committed to the adult content, but 
especially with the new CEO, um, Amy Gann, she's really trying to push their, you know, SFW app, um, OFTV, which is, you know, not having any sexual content because you can't (laughs) have that on app stores. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, but it's a different model, right? Like it's a totally different type of content and the porn business has always been really lucrative online. So, um, but it has given a platform to a lot of, um, sex workers and other creators who, you know, are able to have a really safe, a safer living now, although there's all the harassment issues as well, which we won't get into mm. today, but, um, but yeah, they've, and what I think will be interesting is a year from now, what their 2022 numbers look like. Cause we have to remember these are, this is for the year ending November, 2021. And we were still, you know, Delta. Oh, okay, yeah, that we feels were, very oh, misleading. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what they're that. reporting on his last year. Okay. Yes. Interesting. Oh. Yes. So this is still, you know, this is still riding the coattails of the pandemic. So it'll be really interesting to see. Which, in theory, that sort of pandemic head fake could be applicable to Substack, could be applicable Mm -hmm. to everything we're talking about. Um, Okay, the last one on this topic, uh, and then folks can dip out, and Chris and I might still commiserate for a while. But Mm -hmm. we haven't spoken about TikTok, and I want to bring up TikTok for anybody that wants to comment, because I want to say that, like... I was talking to a VC recently that said essentially any startup now, their marketing plan is, oh, well, we, we go on TikTok, um, and, which, you know, it, it, five years ago it was, well, of course, we have uh, AdWords and we, have, uh, we go on Facebook and things like that. Um, and, and it's true. Like some of the companies that are D2C that pitched to me, they constantly say, oh, well, all of what, what marketing have you done? It's all been on TikTok. Um, so uh, anyone that wants to comment to what degree, either from the creator point of view or from the brand advertising point of view, um, is TikTok the whole game right now, basically? I've noticed, I've noted in my newsletter that like anytime any creator gets any traction on, on TikTok, they almost immediately start trying to move that audience over to YouTube. They launch some kind of more long form, mm. um, long form video series on YouTube because the, that's where, you know, the monetization is, uh, uh still. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've all seen the video that went viral several months back from Hank green, where he talked about, you know, how terrible TikTok is for, um, for monetization in terms of the creator fund and everything like that. And like Kai was, was talking about, I think like a lot of, you know, influencers are having a hard time with brand deals because they're just having such a hard time predicting the actual performance of any one video since there's, since there's like such huge swings in viewership depending on, you know, what the algorithm favors. So it's, it's, you look at any of the top TikTokers and they're trying to move their audience over to YouTube. One last last thing I'll just say quickly is I think also these campaigns sometimes can take a life of their own. Um, In the story that I referenced from Sylvia, um, a lot of these, they were doing a lot of these hashtag branded challenges and um, Starbucks did one with Chance the the Rapper and they encouraged users to do a duet. Um, And TikTok users just like thought the clip was really awkward and were like mocking it. So then it went viral for the wrong reason. So I think, yeah, some of these challenges can really take a life of their own. And for brands that are wary of this, 
um, it, it just might. And that's why TikTok has moved away from some of those types of challenges. But there's definitely a flip side and, and kind of a risk for brands uh, to advertise on TikTok. I was just going to add from the point of view of what what's next for TikTok or what are they seem to be focusing on and certainly looking at the code of the app and speaking to other people that are sources for me, um, some of the things that are beyond the obvious things which have been in the news to do with shopping, for example, is um, a bit of that classic situation with social apps where they kind of merge in the middle where the features that the other platforms have got that TikTok hasn't got, it's now desperately trying to catch up with and one of those particular areas of uh, it's trying to speed up and catch up on is is friendships and all um, and messaging and private personal acquaintances and connections all the things that um people are complaining about now meta sort of stepping away from slightly and the things that snapchat was built around with you know its direct messaging functionality is something that tiktok is clamoring to kind of now quickly build build up in the background because it hasn't really got it so strongly so a lot of the features in the code that I've seen sort of talk about um, the, uh, um, upgrades and improvements to direct messaging, updates and improvements to um, helping you find and maintain personal friendships and private sharing uh, and doing all those kind of like close acquaintances things which we're used to with other apps, as well as the the local part, so the local shopping, the the map features, which is something that um, I made and sort of signposted last week, uh, and trying to, again, you know, snap maps, snap maps have been around for a long time and has been very successful and permitted for them and that's something that, that uh, Instagram also has some sort of version of and is doing more with now TikTok is um, kind of pushing on that combined with its search functionality that it's starting to bring in on its own to kind of you know compete with uh, Google which is an interesting kind of play as well um, and then finally the end of the point I was going to make was to do with uh, which reiterates what some of the others were saying about creators and that it's it's easy to um, or somewhat uh, exciting and enticing to that you can go viral so quickly and become a overnight sensation on TikTok, but maintaining um, a, a connection with an audience, a sustaining a uh, creator relationship with an audience, and, and monetizing it is, is proving to be hard for a lot of creators. And so you go there for the, for, to be viral, um, but you you head off to somewhere else to make the money and, and, and create a living out of it. And I think that's for TikTok is going to be a challenge that they still haven't quite figured out. And, and that's something that YouTube has a, a very big leg up, as does Instagram as well it's it's still multi-skew as chris said at the beginning it's still you 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 have lead gen on one platform and you make your money on another i i guess it's it's still sort of um sliced up and and all over the place but um i want to i want to offer the three people that have been on stage so far the chance to go if they want um, matt navara is um a geek out i think um he does spaces, but he does newsletters. Um, search for him. Simon Owens uh, is um, Simon. What's the name of your newsletter? It's the uh, media newsletter. Yeah, if you just Google Simon Owens newsletter, you'll find it. And um, Kai Uriyev, uh is a reporter at the Information, covering this stuff. Um, so you'll hear me quote her all the time on the show, but also search her out on on uh, the Information. Um, you all are welcome to stay, uh, but uh, Chris, I think we're going to slightly pivot a little bit. And, um, yeah, we thought we'd open up the floor friend. a little bit yeah. more. Um, I was, I was just going to jump in if I can for a second about yeah. TikTok. Yes, yes, please. Excellent, and then I'll get back to work. Well, um, and, and, and Chris, uh, uh, or, or introduce yourself, or Chris, introduce Corinne. Yeah, Corinne, go, uh, go sure. ahead and introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. 
introduce myself? Okay, yes. hi. Um, I'm a digital media consultant, um, and I can see quite a few people in the room are in the journalism space or in the media space generally, so I'll speak to that audience. Um, just wanted to talk briefly about thinking about branding on TikTok. Mm. Um, earlier this year, I was approached by Jay Rosen at Columbia University on a really interesting project, which I think more organisations could you know, ad- adopt and adapt, and it'll be talked about at ONA this year. Uh, so Jay had engaged his master's degree students who are studying journalism to develop a brand, pre- research and develop a brand presence for The Intercept. And the thing about The Intercept, of course, is it's hard news, it's investigative journalism, it's a lot of body cam footage, that sort of thing, and so it's quite a difficult um, get for the TikTok audience, does that make sense? So I was doing quite a lot of research around, you know, how do you match your brand presence to that platform? And I've also just finished doing some work with a Sydney B2B publisher here in Australia where they have around 40 titles and they're arranged, you know, so some of them are construction and, you know, building pools and so on and, and some are in the printing sector and some are in the pub sector and some are in health and beauty. And I guess the point that I want to make is like I really – the what you said earlier about the rush to TikTok, I think everybody should be really sitting back and thinking, okay, what is my brand presence on that platform? Um, because it's not a good you fit are, you're for talking more everybody. Strategically, or do you mean just in yeah. general, like whether or not you should? Well, or is this like, well, no, yes. this is an imperative? Uh, no, no, not at mm. all. I, th- I, th- I think that one should have a strategy as to whether one should. Yeah, I think I, what I find is, is we're sort of in this... Um, God, what is the word? Uh, it's sort of, yeah, I guess like an imperative to some degree, like the, the narrative has shifted, you know, the, the worm has turned and TikTok seems to be this mysterious thing that you, it is a vortex that you have to put yourself into and throw yourself into whether you want to or not. I mean, it's not too dissimilar from the way in which Instagram, of course, was trying to get everyone to start producing video, whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. Uh, what I sure. find also uh, interesting. I, I, I think, uh-huh. sorry, just to jump on yeah, yeah. that though, I think our, our industry has done that a lot over many years. Oh, 100%. You know, so 2015 it was chat apps and then 2016 it was it was WhatsApp and then, do you know what so I mean? Voice, like we, voice we assistance. Go, oh, let's go and do that thing. Yeah. And, you know, to your point for this conversation, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic it was quit your job and start a Substack, right? <laughs> yes. So, and here we are. <laughs> that was going to be how everyone's going to make their living. Uh, turns out that's, everyone that's is right. a smaller So it's really sitting there and thinking what's, what's the brand fit for? my organization or if you're an individual what is my what is my personal brand you know and what's it worth i think you, you know chris you, you and matt have a strong personal brand in ways that a lot of people that think oh i could do the same thing may not i mean i guess you have to be sort of weird and idiosyncratic and somewhat like ocd um but my my, my question then is there, there seems to be on the one hand a, a passive aspect to TikTok, where, you know, one is just creating content on the platform and getting used to it like any other medium, you know, it's just sort of a, there's, there's a new set of ticks and conventions and things that you need to learn in terms of producing good and interesting content. Um, now that sort of presumes that your goal then is to actually go viral, uh, to sort of have the algorithm pick you up and then put you in front of a bunch of people. And that somehow that'll be meaningful. Now, of course, that's more, uh, flash in the pan, which from a business perspective actually isn't really one sustainable or that meaningful. So my other question, since you're talking about TikTok strategy, is actually about the search side. What I've been hearing more and more about is that a, a younger generation, in fact, actually the um, the head of Facebook's um, feed product was on, oh man, 
uh, oh, Land of the Giants pod, which was on the Verge cast, I think, anyways, on a recent podcast episode. And, you know, I thought it was actually a very interesting episode because he talks so much about changing norms and behaviors from a younger gener- generation that's growing up with the assumption that content should be video first, right? Those of us who grew up on the web, we assume that content is sort of like text first, it's the most accessible, it's indexable. Whereas the younger generation grows up imagining, you know, uh, if you think about like all the all the TV stuff that, that we watched, you know, earlier, that all of that stuff should just be indexed and available as short little clips and snippets. Why shouldn't it be that way? So given that, then it's actually a different type of impetus, which is to say that producing video content, content as video, um, Regardless of the platform, though, of course, the most relevant platforms right now are Meta and, uh, well, I, I suppose Instagram and Reels, uh, to a lesser, lesser degree Snapchat, and obviously TikTok. How much is, is and search? And, yes, of course, YouTube. Thank you. And, and, and um, Schwartz. Like, how much do you think video, just like sort of, you know, it used to be about search engine optimization. Now it's sort of like a video uh, engine optimization or recommendation engine optimization, uh, to, to quote Mike Bignano, who we had on before. How much is that part of the strategy that you have to think about going forward? Like you just need to be there and it's not really about the viral aspect. You know, Adam Masseri put a tweet out a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, video has got to be part of your strategy. Otherwise you shouldn't be doing it. Doing video as in okay. creating video content at all. It is the most time consuming uh, of it, all it, yeah, media really products. Yeah. You know, it's a beast. And to make not just TikToks but good TikToks, mm. you know, you, you need – I mean, you don't need to invest heavily in equipment because some of the really good content is just, per, you know, first-person storytelling. Yeah. But you do need a good idea, so you've got to have the time to do that. Um, and then just creating that content does take longer than putting together a, um, you know, a, well, oh, it's well, I mean, I mean, it, it right? So uh, a good one, yeah. maybe one a week. But to your question about virality, I mean, I, I think it's always a case of building a, a community around a topic. That community doesn't necessarily need to be enormous. Um, I was just recently a judge on the Publisher Podcast Awards and one of the podcasts was looking at the revenue category and one of the podcasts had built a really good income stream, you know, and everyone was, oh, what, how many, like enough, right? They were making a good income on 250 downloads, but those 250 mm. people were the exact overlap of one of their sponsors that was willing to pay quite a lot of totally. money to reach those people, yeah. you know? Yeah, and that's that's the right kind of niche. Um, Corinne, thank you. I wanted to bring up uh, Bullish Thanks. Studio. I don't know uh, if that's the best way to address you, but you've, you, you said that you had some insights about some of the numbers um, uh, that you wanted to share. Yes. Hi, uh, my name's Brian. I'm the founder of Bullish Studio. Um, I've worked uh, I've worked in media and advertising for like the last ten years. I started as a media buyer for Samsung, helping them uh, battle Apple against the iPhone as uh, the Samsung Galaxy Sounds phone like launched. A pitched, a pitched battle there. Yeah, it was. Uh, we went from spending seventy five million a year to a billion a year, and like did like everything. <laughs> wow. Did it work? Um, Oh yeah, it was wild. I mean, like the amount of money flowing was just out of control um, across like all media types, from like outdoor down to digital, and like all the crazy like ad tech stuff that you can do like eight years ago. Um, but then I jumped over to Vice and uh, really started to understand uh, premium content and monetization, and uh, 
rode that wave for five years <laughs> and then uh, really wanted to focus on uh, finance and the like opportunity of financial media for Gen Z millennials as the wealth transfer, all of that fun stuff is happening. And uh, I didn't want to become a bloated media company. So I decided to sign a bunch of creators uh, on every major social platform and newsletter. So folks like Parit Patel on here and Ramp Capital, and there's a bunch of other newsletters that we work with. I know we were talking about Substack and Beehive earlier. We invested a small little check in Beehive. Um, honestly, like, so we see a lot of money that rolls between brands and creators, um, like in the millions between our like top line revenue, and then gets passed down through us to the creators. Um, <clears throat> my honest take, I think, on a lot of this is like, video is an empathy machine and is worth 10 times more than really anything else. And with newsletters and stuff, there's like a lot of like riches in the, in the niches, but I think so much of it has just been like so overhyped and like, you know, the Substack numbers coming out and the fact that they were even like going to be looking at a billion dollar valuation. I'm just like, yo, there are like WordPress plugins that do more revenue than them. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. they're just like operating silently in the background. But like because the whole VC buzz around it, I'm like, what is like <laughs> does anybody know about WooCommerce and how big of a giant they are? Like yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I think that there's just so much outsized talk about that. Um, and then I don't know, just to quick quickly address some of the TikTok stuff is like um, you know, there's cheap reach there, you know? It's like if you're a brand, you know, you can go viral, you can get a lot of cheap views. But is it meaningful or is it cheap? No, it's cheap and meaningful. It drives mm. results. Like it is like what all the brands that we run TikTok ads for, it is mm. the by far and away the cheapest CAC that you can get. Now you can have some questions on the lifetime value and the age and all that other stuff, but like honestly, it's just cheap. And the opportunity the arbitrage opportunity is the fact that the biggest brands like the Samsungs are nervous about spending that extra ten million dollars a year into TikTok because of all of the hesitancy around whatever the latest news story about TikTok is, you know? And like that, that's still getting held up in traditional television, you know? And like, so in some ways the fact that it's like still somewhat the wild, wild west means that actually the rates are lower on TikTok, whereas a highly moderated platform, you know, which you can debate with, I suppose, but certainly, you know, the, the, the head of uh, Facebook's newsfeed talked a lot about their moderation AI and capabilities there means that it's a much safer place for advertisers to play the same story with Spotify to some degree. Um, yeah, but that, yeah. Mm-hmm. but still, YouTube is the machine. It's always mm. been the golden nugget. It's the highest CPMs and it's the highest quality content because if you're running mid-roll on a 20-minute video deep in a topic, whether it's guitar lessons or financial advice, that ad is going to cost a fortune and it's going to pay the creator a nice rip. And YouTube had that formula figured out, but long-form video – and holding that attention span has been always the most challenging thing, which you haven't really, I mean, some TikTokers have jumped to YouTube successfully, but it's a grind to really nail long form on YouTube. And once you can nail that, then it's like, hey, then you can snip a Netflix. It's like, oh, wow, what am I capable of? So wait, so, so uh, one more question for you. Like in terms of the creator economy, the, the promise and the premise at least seem to have been, at least from you know the Kevin Kelly perspective, that if you have a, a, a hundred or a thousand true fans, depending on your generation, um, you could sort of eke out or even actually make a pretty good living. What I'm hearing you say, though, is that becoming or figuring out how to become like a YouTube star or a YouTube influencer or a YouTube person that you know runs ads is 
uh, like is is a new type of job. It's a new type of gig, uh, and those two things are actually at odds to me because one of the challenges I think that that perhaps we're trying to uh, illuminate here is that just being a creator of things that you love may not be sufficient, but that you actually have to figure out the medium or media that will support your income, which may not be your preferred medium. Like Brian and I don't do a video podcast. I mean, mostly because it'd be so much more work and, you know, I at least have a day job and I know Brian's got a lot of stuff going on as well. Actually, he's got a day job doing the daily show. So given that it would be so much more work for us to try to turn ourselves into YouTube creators relative to being creators in mediums and formats that actually work for us, but that may be ultimately less lucrative. So what is your advice to people that come to you and are like, Hey, I've got this newsletter, you know, what should I do? Yeah. I mean, look overall, like not, if you look at the creator economy in a macro level, there's something like 90% of all of it really is brand deals. And like you can bundle consulting and stuff, but the mm-hmm. revenue is coming from the brands, mm-hmm. all this premium subscription talk, nice and sexy. Yeah. You can make some money off of it. But the real big money is still in the brand deals. And I think what I'm seeing a lot of creators do is that they were writing really high off of a lot of like sponsored content for a while. And what a lot of them have realized is that because there's so much churn and burn on the brand deals, they want more long-term partnerships. So they're starting to move more into consulting. And I think now I'm starting to see more creators start to do consulting long-term partnerships with various brands or whatever, where they're just not even appearing on the brand social channels. They're just helping them tell them what to do. They're doing their editing, whatever. And that's like becoming more lucrative for everybody because it's cheaper for the brand because they can get videos for a fraction of the price and it's super optimized for the platform. So it's a really efficient way for everybody to get involved. But, um, I mean, look like, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, I think everybody also like nobody on Twitter makes any money. Um, everybody (laughs) talks about all this stuff. Like we work with some of the biggest creators. We found these like weird little hacks and tried to do all this stuff. You cannot make money on Twitter as a creator. Like, there's just no money in it. Instagram and the amount of money that Meta pays creators as a percentage of their revenue is honestly insulting. And like that, like when it comes to like people running to TikTok, like people are just running to wherever the money and the eyeballs are. And like you know, the second that Zuckerberg turns his knob a little bit more into giving another billion dollars or two to the creator fund, you're going to watch all the creators just run from TikTok to start doing more IG lives. Like they just have that knob on such a close, I mean, like I lived through the pivot to video and it was like, uh Oh, like literally 25 people advice got laid off one day because it looked to video and like, you know, yeah. So anyway, I keep going. (laughs) Let me round this off by asking the question that I asked, um, about a half an hour ago, uh, which is, the the thing that was said to me this week was if you're a consumer facing brand, essentially what you're doing right now is operating a TikTok account um, for all the reasons that you just said because it's cheap and and it it gets tangible results. Is is that what you're seeing too? Is that like if I if I'm a if I'm a startup that's trying to uh, pinch my pennies and get the most bang for my buck in terms of marketing and customer acquisition, TikTok is where it's at. Yeah, for sure. Like, for example, like, I mean, I, we do a lot of like financial services and stuff, but like, I know that like a big area is like SaaS, like the, the no code SaaS tools. There's a kid I came across who has 20,000 followers on TikTok and just does like no code tutorials of like Webflow, Airtable, like you name it, random new, like consumer facing tinker tool, like $10 a month. And you know, all the, you go to him, you pay him 500 bucks, a thousand dollars, 
you know, you give him an extra thousand dollars in exchange for the rights to the ad for to use that. He makes a quick little UGC demo. That ad will be the top performing ad in that entire SaaS company's like next three to six months, and it will just drive people. And they can just hyper target if they know what they're doing and spend you know very little money to run tests like that. Um, and that's a ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar campaign if you want it to be. Um, but yeah, that's the opportunity. I might I might need to get in touch with you offline because <laughs> I, I need to learn more about this. Um, Chris, how are you feeling? I think we're good. I think I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, I think uh, when it comes back to the original question for today's show, you know, is the creator economy okay? I think the answer is the jury is out. And mm. you know, coming up uh, probably you know towards the end of the year and into Q one next year. I think we're going to have a bit of, you know, clarity on what's going on. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think that I got out of the earlier part of the show and with Snapchat, um, of course, hiring so many people during the pandemic and then laying a lot of people off. And of course, they weren't the only ones. They just kind of like massively like went hard. And, you know, that's when the money was flowing and suddenly it's not. And they're like, oh, shit, really like way over our skis is I know I feel like this is a a European idea, but like right sizing. that's kind of what the industry is going through. Like, you know, we've lost a lot of the pandemic um, overages, perhaps, uh, and and dalliances uh, that companies assumed might, you know, have been part of the future being drawn into the present. And so now we're going back to where things were, which probably, you know, if we look at this over a several year period, maybe normalizes out to more steady state growth than the kind of explosive growth than I think people expected um, through the pandemic. I think my concern would be for creators and the creator economy generally is that as we've sort of all hinted at or, or touched on in this conversation is if the big platforms move their sour on I other places, mm. it's going to be harder, you know, but that's always um, the case, right? And that's I mean, always the case as tech changes, <laughs> as media evolves. Like, I mean, I, same like, as it ever was, yeah. same as it ever was. And I mean, that, that is, that is, I think the, the precariousness of being a, you know, a creator, which is essentially a new form of, of freelancing, um, yeah. that you've got to go where the eyeballs are. And so you have a very, like having that direct relationship to your ultimate customer is mediated and intermediated by the platforms. And so you want their scale and you want their ability and you want all the monetization tools that they provide, but then you don't want to be disintermediated because it makes you vulnerable. And that's the sort of Faustian bargain that this generation, I think, is left with. Real talk. 52% of men over 40 experience some form of ED between the ages of 40 and 70. But it's always been a taboo topic. Thankfully, Hims is changing that by providing affordable access to ED treatment all online. Hims provides access to clinically proven generic alternatives to Viagra and Cialis, up to 95% cheaper with options as low as $2 per dose. The process is simple and 100% online. No uncomfortable doctor's visits. Answer a series of questions on their site and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No insurance needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. Hims has hundreds of thousands of trusted subscribers, so if ED is getting you down, it's time to change that. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash ride. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash ride for your personalized ED treatment options. Hims.com slash ride. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. 
We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get Get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Chris, before we go, were you able to uh, mess around with Stable Diffusion? I played with it a little bit, you know, and um, I, I ended up actually hunting it because uh, I was in touch with the, the founder. And, man, there was a lot of energy around that. So uh, for those who, who aren't, aren't aware yet, I know, Brian, you mentioned it, it on, was on the, the show. It very, was very end of today's show, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a number of these AI art generation tools that have come out, and they're variations essentially on a theme, and they use different training data to produce different results. And Stable Diffusion is the one that has come out most recently, and it is possibly one of the more exciting ones. Uh, one, it's fast. Well, Two, they well, have. Uh, uh-huh. Number one, it's uh, okay. currently free. Uh, Anyone oh, well, can fair. use it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, so they have something called the Dream Studio, and it is wild. I mean, you can go in there and just produce some stuff and. Um, you really get a feel for it pretty quickly. I do think actually there was another story that you did today that was relevant that actually feeds into this greater economy story. And this will maybe be the last point um, where was it Ohio or anyway, some kid submitted Color- Colorado state, Colorado yeah. state. Okay. Colorado state submitted some AI generated artwork into an art contest and won. And I don't know if he disclosed it or not, but of course this is the first time where this type of thing has really been done where, you know, his wizardry was in sort of conjuring up an amazing image as a result of the prompts that he had uh, apparently spent months. It was a very, very cool picture, I have to say. Yeah. So, so, but nonetheless, it wasn't his fingers, you know, uh, that was actually producing, you know, pixels on screen or strokes from a brush. And it raises the question as he raised, you know, does it matter what the, the type of relationship is between the artist and the output? Or is the genius and the creativity in kind of imagining what might be possible and then working with the medium, which in this case is almost like an interactive medium that you're dancing with to produce a result that is still compelling and is still emotional, even if it's trained on billions of other previous pieces of art that were similarly you know, emotive and expressive. I think it's a super fascinating question. And it raises, again, like that, that is the next generation medium, right? You're talking today about how the eye, uh, eyes of Sauron from these big social media platforms may turn towards other formats or priorities and and what have you. But this is a structural change in the way that content is produced such that all these creators that are producing content today could essentially be obviated by a set of machine learning algorithms that learn how we produce content and then reduce it. I mean, that, that is actually the, the, what is it? What are the number? Let me, let me, like the the thought was, so when listening to 
the again, I just I learned so much from this 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 Verge podcast uh, with a guy from um, Facebook. You know that there is an adversarial relationship between the platforms that curate places where eyeballs gather, in other words, feeds and streams, etc., and people that want to get into those streams and be seen and made visible by the the aggregation effect. And so you're constantly trying to discern, you know. Is the content that we're showing people stuff that they actually want to see, or have people figured out how to game that system in such we need to actually reset the rules because the the gamers of that system, the, the ones that have over optimized for you know what was um, what was it called meaningful social interactions MSI um, actually turned out to create more um, kind of chaos because they would show things that cause an emotional response and a reaction, and of course the press and the media and poli- uh, political um, folks figured out. That if you put more of that crap in the feed, that that'll cause, you know, essentially the algorithm to spike and then more of that content will be shown. So that's their their role is to make sure that the content that shows up there doesn't actually have a long term deleterious effect on the consumption of that content. And so that's that's the the background uh, radiation that's kind of there in this uh, creator economy. Well, so so to tie this up with the talk about AI generated artwork, essentially what you just said is that the people that have been successful or are being successful in terms of creating content that works well on the platforms and the algorithms are people that have learned to work the machines, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, that so have mastery like, over those machines. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're an artist that plays an instrument that has specific inputs and outputs, and you figured out how to play that violin better than anyone else. Yeah, that's so, right. With the AI generated artwork thing, like I, I almost did a, a a little rant on it, but here here's my thinking about I, I, I'm I'm complete. This is one of those things where I'm completely wide open. I don't have an opinion on this stuff yet. But the 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 point that the artist made, I think I quoted his point about this, but he was like, um, "I'm just working the machine." Right. And in a sense, he's right because if you've played around with stable diffusion, which is the one I played around with the yeah, most, he, he used Midjourney. Midjourney was the tool right. he used. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy, even like if I wanted to create the perfect work of art that I have in my head, it is not like you just do it in 30 seconds. He yeah. said that it took yeah. him hundreds and hundreds of tries to get the input the way he wanted to get the machine to do what he wanted, right? That's right. How is that different? Like, so I can't... I've I've just pinned the tweet, by the way, so you can see the artwork. Yeah, I currently can't get Stable Diffusion to... I I can make it do cool things, but not like, oh my God, this is what I wanted. Right. It's a learned skill to make the... to do put the inputs into the machine to get back what you want. How is that different than um, Photoshop? I also cannot do Photoshop well enough to make a mind-blowing photo. There are other people that can because they've learned the tools, they've learned the machine, they've learned to dial the knobs and, and, and things like that. Is it really that different? <laughs> like, or because there's less knobs? Or is it just, again, it's, a, it's, it's learning an instrument and, and getting music out of it that other people can't? 
No, I think I mean? that's right. No, absolutely. I mean, it's also one of those issues around like sunk cost, where if you've spent your life learning a brushstroke or, you know, learning how to, you know, make pixel art and you've perfected all the ways in which you can ma- manipulate, you know, visuals with Photoshop. Ironically, of course, you probably pissed off the previous generation that was all about making photos in the dark room and using dodging and burning and those techniques that were manual techniques. Now you have an AI that just does those things automatically for you. And so what's crazy is actually as an artist or creator, you can get much closer well, I shouldn't say much closer. You can start to put more of your almost like creative intentions into like manifesting the thought and the expression and then working with the machine in a collaborative way as opposed to using it purely as a tool. Like in other words, like Photoshop, well, as I suppose there are some I was gonna say, like, where are the where do the opinions of Photoshop lie? And in some ways, some of the filters that it provides or some of the ways that it, you know, uses color um, or, or brush strokes, for example, that are, uh, that are brought to you, you know, for free um, are kind of like the defaults and the, the defaults matter. And you have to be really good at the tool and know all the things that you can f- configure and change in order to break free of those defaults. But in this case, when you're working with a, a generative AI that's trained on billions of prior art and prior examples, now suddenly it's, it's, it's a lot more, it's not... It's not deterministic. Like what you're going to get out is actually variable. And so therefore you have to be willing to be a lot more, I think, creative and flexible in the creative process. And that is, I think, ultimately going to change things, but it's very foreign and I think very threatening to a lot of people who are invested in the previous way of doing things. Yeah, or they embrace it. I think like, mm-hmm. I don't know, let AI do the AI. I think a lot of what you're talking about is like, creators and publishers that all have unique styles of storytelling and creativity that they all have input into. And that's the ultimate artwork, IP, whatever you want to define it as that's already happening right now. Let the AI come in and like put the like stock imagery over like headlines and text and spray it out for a couple of views. But like, that's never going to really work in the long run. Um, and if AI does take over, let it happen. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, I haven't seen any, like, banger deep fake accounts on Twitter yet. But if you see them, send them my way. I'd love to take a look at them. I've there seen there are some good ones AI on TikTok, ads. you know, on TikTok. And honestly, check them out. like, sometimes brands try to cheap out and then they'll hire the AI spokesperson they got the ad for for, like, 300 bucks <laughs> yeah. and then on TikTok. And it's like all the comments are just roasting the brand. If you want to talk about how to not do TikTok? Don't hire an AI spokesperson. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's that's the lesson for today. Uh, Brian, yes. want to close this out? Yeah. Okay. Here's here's my dumb ending. Like, uh, <laughs> that I'm, will I'm never John be Chancellor. repeated by an AI. Yeah. Go for it. No. Well, no. I wasn't. I, I wasn't ready for. I love everybody yet. But uh, oh. for 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 creators, Chris. Yeah. It's the best of times. Mm-hmm. It's the worst of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my dumb one. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, now it's time for I Love Everybody. I, I love everyone that uh, came on stage to talk tonight. I love Chris for um, having this conversation with me. I love everyone for listening. Chris, who do you love? Yeah, I love everyone on Twitter too, um, and especially those who are not making any money. I love you very much. 